My guest on this episode is Peter, who recently wrote a book called Honest to Greatness, which is coming out in mid-August, I think August 11th. He actually has a 21-question honesty quiz on his website, which I linked in my show notes for this episode. He scaled an agency back in the day, and he focuses on a coaching, consulting approach driven by honesty, which might seem like an oxymoron to some people. I've thought a lot about honesty at work and in a personal context over the last few years as well. The big example in the workspace is probably Ray Dalio and radical transparency, and Peter and I discussed that here. We also talk about some research, which I think is from Northwestern, on how virtually every human being under the sun has lied in their life, but how you lie is typically a function of social class and access to resources. Peter calls honesty a clarion call for the rest of your existence as an adult, and I'd largely agree with that. Final quick note here, I think I hadn't quote-unquote dropped an episode in about seven to nine days. I'm trying to get back to about two per week, Monday and Friday, but I'm also balancing out the rest of my life and income possibilities. So for the 5,000 or so people who have listened to this so far, I might come back for another one. I'll try to stay consistent with new episodes. All right. Without further ado, let's get to Peter and honesty. So uh, the book's called Honest to Greatness, How Today's Greatest Leaders Use Brutal Honesty to Achieve Massive Success. And the funny thing, Ed, and I, I don't know how funny it is, some days funnier than others, is I never set out to write about, speak about, or frankly, even care about honesty. Um, I set out to write a marketing book. Uh, I built a, an Inc. 5000 marketing agency uh, right out of college with my business partner, uh, scaled that to, uh, you know, we were across the country, had an office uh, in the U.S., Canada, and um, I was always frustrated by what I thought was stupidity at the executive level of many of the clients I worked with and, and some of the companies that I saw in my you know long 10 plus year career. Right. I could never figure out, Ed, why some of our clients took our growth strategies and just crushed it. I mean, they'd get like a five or 600% ROI. They'd stay with us for years, you know, loved it. Others, you know, we'd give the same care, attention, strategy to. It was very clear what they needed to do, and they would just blow up in the launch pad. I mean, they could not get out of their own way. It was right. just infighting and politics and bullshit. Right. Quite frankly. So, did you, so you initially attributed it to like uh, cluelessness or like shiny object syndrome at the executive level. I right? did, yeah, and you know, it, <laughs> that's like you know, um, late twenty-year-old. I think I know better, Peter talking right but yeah, now yeah. you know after after I've you know been through a lot more years I realized you know of course you know any executive who's risen through the ranks isn't an idiot you know they have to be intelligent people what I actually discovered was that a lot of folks who rise to authority positions end up fundamentally dishonest and not in the way that like you know I'm going to outright lie to people but they get dishonest on on one of three levels that I talk about in the book Either they become dishonest about what's going on in the world, you know, the, the transitioning nature of society and consumer trends and just you know how technology is coming in and making sweeping changes to industries, 
or they've grown dishonest about uh, the others around them, you know, their fellow executives and how much they know relative to others in their boardroom, or even, you know, failed to get honest about how their own customers are thinking and feeling about their products and services. And finally, I found that a lot of people who end up in authority positions grow to be dishonest about themselves, you know, about their own biases and self-limiting beliefs as a leader. And on the flip side, Ed, what I've found is that leaders and organizations that I profile in my book, from Warren Buffett to Ray Dalio to the CEOs at Quicken Loans and uh, the Ritz-Carlton and Domino's Pizza, they all have one thing in common, which is they use brutal honesty, not as a uh, you know touchy-feely core value like let's tell the truth. I mean, that's all well and good, but this is a business book, not an ethics book. What I found is that when they use brutal honesty as a strategy, they end up absolutely dominating their competitors and earning outsized profits. And so that when that all kind of crystallized for me, that's when I realized I had not written a marketing book. I wrote a book about about honesty everywhere in culture and organizations in our personal lives. It really took my literary agent telling me, like, this isn't a book about marketing. It's a book about honesty. And I was like, well, obviously, you didn't read the title because that's you know not what it is. But when I went home, I was like, sure as hell. Like, Damn, he is absolutely right. This is a book yeah. about honesty. So here I am. Right. And in some respects, I mean, it still is a book about marketing in the return sense, but just like the lever being honesty. Okay. Obviously Dalio has done stuff around it with like radical transparency being right. his big thing. But I would say like, okay, it's like a, if you put Dalio aside, it's like maybe like blue ocean type concept, because I don't think, a lot of people tie the idea of uh, 500% ROI to honesty. I think they think that it would come from other levers, right? Whether mm-hmm. it's like product development or like uh, hierarchical organization or I don't know, like freaking Instagram or whatever, right? It's but, like, here's the, but here's the thing, Ed, like none of that can happen without, without the it. honesty in the center. I agree completely. So what um, what did you find or what did you see in some of these examples? Like where is the difference between the bullshit lever where people have it as a core value and mention it at all hands meetings, but it's not really an honest culture and then a culture where there's execution around honesty? Like, where's the, what's like the, not like the secret sauce necessarily, but where's the differentiator there? Because, you know, every company has like serve with integrity or be honest with customers. And a lot of them have it tacked on a wall and don't follow it. So where's the trigger from the BS side of it to, okay, this can actually be tied to, business returns like what did you see anything around that you know i'm glad you bring up culture because such a big part of strategic honesty and organizational honesty has to be ingrained in the culture and to your point i can't tell you how many organizations i've seen listen we've worked with startups to fortune 500s and even warren buffett himself and i will tell you that there are so many organizations that have core values that are fundamentally 
just bullshit. I mean, they're incorrect. You know, it is the, the very nature of hypocrisy to have core values like that. And meanwhile, every single employee on the front lines and in middle management knows that it's BS. Yes, and what does it 100%. do? It creates, it creates distrust. And when we have distrust, we can't take massive action together. You know, to, I, I can give you a bunch of corporate examples, and I, and I love to, but let's let's pause for a moment and just look at where we're at. It's the middle of 2020 in this pandemic. Look at what's happened. You know, misinformation everywhere. People not taking it seriously. Different governors saying different things. I mean, it's it's mayhem, right? All of that lack of organizational cohesion and honesty about what's going on, what we all need to do, what the process needs to be, has resulted in massive distrust. That distrust has resulted in the inability for us to take cohesive action as a unit. And now what do we have? We have cases running rampant in different states. I mean, it's just, it's pandemonium. And it right. didn't have to be that way. It could have been much simpler. Let me give you a, you know, a couple great examples that I love, Ed. Uh, you know, Take uh, an organization like the Ritz-Carlton which realized a very, very important but often overlooked issue among big organizations, which is this. If you're an executive sitting in the corporate offices in charge of strategy, how much can you actually influence the customer's experience at any given property at any given time? Right. Not at all, right? Right. They're in right. some boardroom somewhere. Like they have literally, there's nothing they can do to make your stay at a Ritz-Carlton more comfortable. They recognized that very early on and got honest about it. And therefore they said to themselves, well, if we can't influence it, who can? Our doormen, our chefs, our receptionists. These are the folks that need to be leaders. These are the folks directly responsible for the experiences that we're promising to customers. So they take people through an incredibly rigorous training process. They do not hire uh, people, employees. They hire and train leaders. And it's very important to them that these people understand that they are leaders, that they are responsible. In fact, Ed, they give each employee on the front lines up to $2,000 that they can spend on a customer's experience at their discretion. No sign-offs required. That's how much they say, we know who has the power in this relationship. It's you, not us. Right. And you, we need to be honest about that and let you do your job. You know, it sounds so simple. And yet I have a feeling uh, you and I both know that in many corporations, people have been you know, cut off at the knees. It's like, you're responsible for this, this, and this. Oh, but you have to fit into these boxes. And right. you know, we're going to say this, but not really do that. And you can't really, you know, oh, there's liability over here. We want to avoid that. I mean, it's just, it's just BS. It gets in everyone's way. And so we get a bunch of people in an organization that are obsessed with job preservation and getting by on the status quo rather than doing something big and bold. And, and I'll give you another example of where this thrives, which is at Quicken Loans. So- uh, Jay Farner at Quicken Loans gave me an interview for the book. It's a fantastic interview. Um, it's in, right in the, in the middle of the book. And their culture is thick and it's so aimed towards innovation. You know, when I set out researching, I, I asked the question, like, because I know Quicken Loans had started Rocket Mortgage. And I was thinking, how did a company ever come up with that? Especially a company come up with that ahead of its much larger publicly traded organizations like Bank of America, Wells Fargo. I mean, these are all big mortgage providers. How did uh, Quicken Loans develop Rocket Mortgage and take the market by storm? And when I looked into their culture and their principles, I actually had to flip the script to myself and say, okay, there was no way that an organization with these beliefs that acted on these beliefs could have not dominated the market. It was manifest destiny. And I say that because they have principles like 
uh, say yes before no. And it's not about what, uh, who is right. It's about what is right. right. And there's this awesome video of, a, of an employee coming to a manager and they're like, hey, I have this idea, you know, I want to try it. And the manager cuts the person off. It's like, yeah, cool, maybe, I don't know. Why don't you go execute on it, see if it works, and then bring it back to me. Right. I mean, just imagine if organizations right. worldwide function that way instead of, uh, you know, managers functioning as gatekeepers and, uh, you know, stop gaps of innovation Instead, you know, Quicken has built a culture that empowers innovation. Of course, it would invent something like Rocket Mortgage. And by the way, Rocket Mortgage has absolutely dominated the mortgage industry. Right. So there's a there's research out of Northwestern from probably like four or five years ago that says that kind of like how people lie or are dishonest um, varies by social class because people with more affluence and resources they tend to like lie or cheat to protect themselves and then ironically even though this is not always the political perception like people further down the social ladder because they lack resources they tend to kind of lie for the benefit of the community not as much the benefit of the individual Mm. so i've seen like execution stuff on that in terms of work and it kind of goes to this quick and loans thing where like the worst cultures, like you said a few minutes ago, are like everybody on the front lines knows that they're dishonest or that they're two faced. And it's like all going back to the top. But we all still have to pretend that it's equitable and honest so that we can get our uh, checks or whatever. Right. Yeah. And then the best the best cultures are the ones that like. Look, I don't think any rational person would say, okay, an executive doesn't deserve higher compensation or more incentives. Most people believe that. But it's like you have to balance out the honesty kind of like continuum between, okay, these people don't have access to as much if the overall company does well, but they should still be brought into the fold in terms of what's going on and their ability to execute and bring iterations to people like that seems to be where the whole uh, thing turns one other thing kind of tied to that that i wanted to ask you is there's like a huge thing i've worked in six or seven places like this and i know it from friends too but like just the idea of like certain things have to be proprietary or can't go beneath a certain level of hierarchy or whatever Did you run into that at all? I know there are some companies out there that have like a totally like executives have the same info as frontline workers. Did you see any of that where like people were willing to strip the notion of everything being super proprietary and information hoarding? Um, Did you see examples of that? Because I always like I always think that would be kind of a progressive work culture if people could do that more effectively. So information hoarding, you raise a great point, is a source of power, right? Yeah. The problem is that the role of an executive in today's super transparent information ubiquity world right. has really changed. The best executives, Ed, pretty much sit back and do not much at all. They let their people do the work because that's what they want to do. People want to go to work and do their work. Like they don't want to have to pretend, right? So 
And I call it the executive mirror because, you know, before executives, you know, they had a lot of heavy lifting. They were the ones that had, you know, the MBAs and they were the ones that knew much more than the rest of the organization. Communication and data didn't flow like it did today. So naturally, they would come up with strategies and push them down the triangle. Right. right. But today it's reversed. We can source information from prospects, customers, frontline employees in an instant. Right. Yes. And so what I found is that those frontline people, they actually know what to do. I, I ran a case, uh, I ran a, a focus group a couple of years ago for an organization that had brought us in. So we get brought in for focus groups and interviews and, you know, what, what do our people think? What do our customers think? And inside of 90 minutes, this group of frontline employees had solved everything that needed to be solved, everything we were brought in to do. So I took that information back to the executives that hired us. And I said, look, um, your frontline people know exactly what to do. They have all this data from their customers. They've had all this feedback. And here's, you know, here's what you've asked for. Oh, well, you know, I don't know if we can do that. Uh, you know, that seems expensive. And I don't, you know, I don't. by the way, this was like the one system that they promised their customers they would deliver. Like that's the <laughs> thing that's too expensive to update, really. Right. And the reason I bring that up is because now the executive role is really just to listen, to absorb. It's like a mirror at the bottom of a diamond, right? The light comes in from the top. It's all the information you can collect from the people who know what's going on in your organization. And an executive's best role is to listen. And if it fits the mission and the culture and the values, to reflect that back out, just like Quicken. Say, yeah, I think that fits with what we do. We could probably do that well. Go do it. And that's it. You know, yep. but most executives, to, to your point, they're hoarding information, they're building, you know, bases of quote unquote power, what they think is power. And like in, listen, an organization can function like that. We have plenty of them out there. The problem is they are always going to get usurped by a quick and loans who is remaining nimble, who's remaining honest about whose idea matters and whose doesn't and what they need to do to dominate. And what I've found, Ed, is that we, we live in a time where everyone knows anyway. All those people you talked about, they know the organization's full of shit. And you just simply can't move forward in a situation where you've built a community where everyone knows that we're not relying on, on truth and therefore we can't trust. It's just not an effective way forward in a world where we have so much information and Glassdoor.com and social media and et cetera, et cetera. So what do you think in an ideal world, in the modern business climate, what do you think the role of like middle manager should be? Because I always come back to this and I'm like, theoretically, I think they should like develop and empower people. Like you said about uh, Quicken, like that manager saying like, go iterate on it, bring that back to me. I feel like that's what it should be. Mm -hmm. I just feel like there's still so many places where the justification is like, oh, they make the trains run or they get stuff off the plates of executives or whatever. And that just feels so flawed in terms of like where we're at with like information accessibility. So like what do, what, what do you think in terms of like both honesty and just like people development and everything, what do you think a middle manager should ideally be doing? So the, the framework I introduce in the chapter about the Ritz-Carlton is called waterfall culture. And it's mm -hmm. the idea that in a really good culture, each layer has only one role, and that is to give the next layer all the tools and the encouragement they need to do their jobs. Like imagine if a, all a middle manager had to do was look at it, her or his team 
and say, do all of these folks have the tools, the technology, the time, the resources, the training, and the motivation, the empowerment, the incentives to go and execute on their jobs really, really well? Now, that sounds super logical, except for the fact, Ed, that I've seen a ton of middle managers that are so busy managing up, so right. busy trying to offload everything on their plate so they can play golf, so busy trying to justify their own job, which really maybe the organization doesn't even need, that it creates a lot of hostility. And the, the here's the problem. The best people, the best people that work under that manager get frustrated and leave. Oh, absolutely. And that's a massive human resources problem that I bet costs billions of dollars a year across American companies and across global companies. Yeah, we just don't track it effectively, but it's got to be like – it Massive. might be in the like triple digit billions. I would, I would agree because yeah. it's not just the the loss of all the costs of having found that person and hired them and trained them and now they're leaving. It's also all the opportunity costs that that really great culture fit would have brought to the table if you just allowed them to do their job. It's that simple. Yeah. Okay. So I guess last uh, question I was going to ask was. Let's say you were running like a mid-sized business, maybe like a larger business. Based on uh, the work that you did, what would you encourage like a mid-level to executive leader to do about COVID and return to work and what's going on with the cash on hand position? Like how can they really embrace like honesty and keeping their employees informed so that it's not kind of like chaos and gossip everywhere like what what would you encourage people to kind of keep in mind about the need for honesty in a potentially chaotic moment so you know as i said earlier i've been an entrepreneur since 22 and we entrepreneurs have to do one thing really well which is always find the silver lining and actually right. you know as horrible as this pandemic is uh, and i think sadly will continue to be it is a wonderful opportunity for people to flex their leadership muscles. The first, you know, and my framework works perfectly for this. I mean, it is a universal framework for business and life, and this was the perfect test for it. And we need to follow the, the structure, which is first, get honest about what's going on in society. Hey, people, we can't bury our heads in the sand about the fact that we're dealing with a global pandemic. You know, open lines of communication. We want to know how everybody's feeling. Um, and we, we can't just simply go forward with the status quo in the way we've always been. By the way, that, again, seems really simple and logical, but I bet you that's happening in a fraction of the organizations in the U.S. that it needs to happen. Number two, get honest with the folks in your business about where you're at. You know, hey, this is the cash we have. Th these are the plans we think will be most effective to uh, survive. And here's where we think we need to pivot. By the way, we want all your feedback on that because you, you all, everyone else besides the manager, the executive, the, the owner, probably have the answers here. And I want to make sure that we're not missing an opportunity. So let's get those ideas flowing. And we also want to be honest, not only with them, but about the others. Uh, that is about how uh, fearful or um, uh, anxious or whatever our the people around us might be. This is where empathy comes into play, Ed. You know, this is where we have to understand if we go a week without saying anything to folks, they're going to start to make up their own stories. You know, simple things like that. Let's be honest right. about what they need right now with regards to leadership and communication and clarity and a roadmap forward, right? 
And finally, executives need to be honest, you know, with themselves, uh, saying to themselves and, you know, both as people and as organizations, what have I built here? What do we need to do now to pivot into a new opportunity? We have a new normal. So, you know, we're doing work now with manufacturing companies across the U.S., helping them sell in a world without trade shows because many right. manufacturing companies, you know, they're, they're dropping tens of thousands of dollars a year, shaking hands at, a, at their annual trade show. Well, guess what? You can't do that anymore. So it's time to rebuild the model and the organizations that again, not only survive this, but thrive because of it will say, Hmm, all right, well, we, we live now in a virtual world. Don't think that's going away zombie apocalypse or not. So, you know, it's probably time to invest in some virtual systems that we never have before. And it's, Ed, listen, if you can get honest on those three levels, you've done 80% of the heavy lifting. Then it's just a matter of, okay, well, you've got ideas sourcing towards you. You're clear and open-minded about what needs to happen. You'll find, you'll always find the way forward if you're willing to be honest about what needs to change. I'd agree with that for sure. I guess like a tag onto that, and I don't know if you touch on this in the book or came across it in um, just stuff you were doing around it, but you know, we tend to draw this like thick black line between um, work and personal. But obviously, if you were to go to any therapist, they would tell you like honesty is crucial for personal relationships too. And really just work is a is a scaled series of personal relationships. Ultimately, did you did you come across like anything notable or interesting around like how this could also benefit you in your day-to-day life. Cause you know, some, some people don't want friends or romantic partners that are uh, brutally honest with them. That does scare certain people. But did you come across anything in a personal context aside from a business and growth context that's worth noting? Oh, absolutely. I mean, firstly, you know, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs now helping them build their own seven figure companies. Right. And I will tell you, 99% of business problems are personal problems in disguise. Yeah, I'd agree with that. There is some thread that's preventing people from moving forward. I mean, I can't tell you how many times like, oh, I, I'm not sure I'm a good salesperson is really like, I'm not confident because this thing happened in my past and therefore, right. you know, I seek validation. And it's like those things, you know, if, if I go solve the sales problem, I've missed the entire point. So I've got very good at always tracing the spirals back to the personal problem in disguise, that that lack of honesty that's preventing us from really identifying what the root cause of the problem is. And I'll tell you, Ed, I mean, the thing that crystallized this for me, the reason I wrote a book at all is because I had a terrible tragedy uh, happen to me, which is that I turned 30. Has this happened to you? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I don't know how yeah. I survived this. I mean, it was just yeah. like awful. And, yeah. you know, by 30, I had built, you know, it looked like a fine life. I mean, I had built a million dollar company. I had just gotten married to my wife. We, we had moved in and we're flipping a house. I mean, for all intents and purposes, I should have just shut the hell up and been happy. But happiness doesn't work that way. And for the first time in a long time, I had to get honest with myself that I had had two massive failures as as a teenager you know 17 i was convinced of two things i was going to the olympics as a figure skater and i was going to harvard and right. by 18 it was clear that neither one of those was, was going to happen. happen yeah and so i you know although you know i spent my 20s building a company and, and being you know what i thought was just fine when i crossed that 30 threshold it made me realize that i had actually assumed that i would always just have a second best life because the, my my first option 
you know, I had completely failed at. And I realized that I had stopped going for the big, big things. Um, and I achieved more Ed, in the year after I turned 30 than I had probably in the 10 years prior. I mean, I had to get honest with myself about who I really was, what I really wanted and what it was going to take to get there. And one of those things that I knew in my core was that I am an author. I'm a writer. I have a book in me. And, you know, just the, the double edged sword of being an entrepreneur and going for big things is that I say, well, you know, I can do that. That's what I really want. The bad, the downside is you actually have to like go out and do it. <laughs> so the book has been an arduous process, but it's in a, on it, what I call honest alignment with who I really am. So to your point, honesty is a clarion call. It's a wake up call to everyone out there who's drifting through life, who has ignored who they really are and what they really want. Because I can tell you right now, if you're out of honest alignment with that, that is a recipe for a lack of fulfillment for the rest of your life. We'll be right back.